Welcome to The Long Game with LZ and Leach from The Recount, where every week we talk about the biggest stories in sports and how they impact culture, politics, and business. I'm LZ Granderson. He's Will Leach. He remains Will Leach, and we have a very full slate of business, as always, this week. First, anyone who listens to this podcast knows just how much I despised seeing the insufferable Mike Krzyzewski take his Duke Blue Devils to the Final Four of the NCAA Men's College Basketball Tournament on Saturday. But, truth be told, I enjoyed rooting for Duke to lose just about as much, if not more, than I relish cheering for an underdog team like St. Peter's to win. We'll discuss the joy of sports hate watching and which players and teams in any league we most love to loathe. Favorite Iggy Pop song, Love to Loathe. I just don't have time to hate. I got too much love in my heart. I need more love in my heart. Can I have some of yours? (laughs) Also, I hate the Celtics. Then we'll talk about how Major League Baseball seems finally willing to make rule changes that increase action and speed up the pace of games, while the NBA and the NFL have consistently altered their rules over the years to make games more exciting, baseball has been far more reluctant to change its long-held ways to improve the entertainment value of the sport. Will, is the league more ready to say goodbye to baseball purists and embrace a new era? Not if you ask John Smoltz, but if you ask anyone under the age of 40, (sighs) yes. Then we'll wrap up the show with This Week in Sports History and look back at the night the Baltimore Colts secretly fled the city for a new home in Indianapolis. And we'll also answer questions from you, our loyal audience. (laughs) The first time anyone's ever escaped to Indianapolis, by the way. (laughs) And I like Indianapolis. And later... LZ and I will be contestants, combatants, if you will, Mm. on a special mini edition of Chatterbrain, the Recount's new game show that will be premiering live on Twitch on March 30th at 4 p.m. Eastern. Hosts Slade Somer and Molly Rubin will be joining us to test our sports knowledge. And maybe, just maybe, I can avenge my humiliating loss to LZ in our NFL playoff draft and, frankly, in everything that we do. (laughs) All of which still pain me to this day. There's a shot for that. I could use it. But before we get to our top stories, LZ, what's your sports mood today? Or really, what's your Oscars mood today? I have not talked to you yet since the Oscars on Sunday night. The big thing that happened, were you watching live, I presume? I was watching live. My former colleague at Deadspin, Tim Burke, is the one that records all of the other feeds from all across the country. So when we were watching it live and we're like, wait, what? Hap- why is it cutting out? What's happening? Why is he yelling? It was Tim Burke who had the Japanese and the Australian feed that let us know exactly what was happening. <laughs> uh, and good excellent. Lord, listen, all the takes have happened. My general thought on this, to be entirely honest with you, to me, it was the speech, Will Smith's speech when he won Best Actor, that to me was kind of uncomfortable to watch because it seems pretty clear he's going through something right now. People campaign for these Oscars, right? And it's been a long, grueling process. He just had a memoir that came out, so he had to kind of open up emotionally in that way as well. And he does the red table thing with his wife, and there's so much that it feels like that night was the culmination of a long, long process that, to be honest, was very open and very upsetting. And it made me feel like I was watching something that I did not have the right to watch. I wasn't quite comfortable doing the, okay, well, here's my hot take. Here's what's going on on this. (laughs) So as much fun as I would think it would be when one celebrity slaps another celebrity at the Oscars, ultimately, (laughs) I've been so kind of exhausted by the whole thing that I haven't been able to work myself into a fun hot take lather. Well, 
I don't do hot takes. I know you so, don't. That's why this show's so, great. So, That's why this show's so great. I, so I was perfectly comfortable taking my time. When the incident happened, I immediately moved my phone away from me. Good call. <laughs> Excellent call. One, I didn't want to hear what anyone else had to say about it until I had thought about it myself. Mm-hmm. And then also, two, I didn't want to say something off the cuff because yeah. I didn't want to be flipping about what was obviously a situation that you should not be flipping about. There was a lot going on, a lot. And I think the fact that both men have publicly apologized to one another is a very, very good step in the right direction. Because those who do thrive in a hot take environment just had a lot of the wind taken out of their sails. You know, it's hard to have a hip hop beef if both rappers are (laughs) saying, yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) <laughs> right. And, and frankly, we I think people have been incentivized over the last, oh, I don't know, five, six years or so to never say you're sorry. That's like a whole right. strategy for people is to never say you're yep. sorry to particularly with a situation as hot as that one was to see like almost immediately, not immediately because there was a speech where there wasn't an apology, but I think to see them kind of back down a little bit was I, I found myself like personally grateful for it, to be entirely honest. Yeah. Absolutely. And I would like to think that it was genuine, you know, that this isn't simply about trying to recover from a PR perspective or trying to appease studios who may have been prepared to greenlight certain projects, but now are having second thoughts. Like, I don't think it was really about that. I really felt it was about one man saying that he overstepped and the other man saying, I too overstepped. And having some sort of private sit down if it hadn't already occurred i'm sure you know will likely happen in the not too distant future and and more importantly there's just bigger shit going on <laughs> what no there is and, and like <laughs> like the former president of the united states mm-hmm. has over 7 hours of log time missing from the white house logs during an <laughs> attempt to overthrow our government i'm sure it's nothing i'm sure it's fine so so it is now later in the week and both men have apologized and we are reminded that there is a war happening in Europe and that during the January 6th insurrection, the president has wiped seven hours of his phone calls away from the records that we could turn our attention back to things more important, which is LeBron James' pursuit of the scoring title. Of course, obviously, obviously. And for the obviously. record, listen, it seems unlike him to erase or to cover his tracks in any way, shape, or form. You think you know a guy, you know? When you think transparency, when you think forthrightness, that's the guy you're thinking of. In the world that we live in, the idea that you think that you can scrub something electronically away forever. <laughs> like, what? why the hell? Why, why are they surveying us if we can lose that, right? Like, why have I given up every aspect of human <laughs> privacy and right. every part of my personality been commoditized? The fact that I can say, right. oh, boy, I need a new toilet brush. And then ads for toilet brushes show up on right. my phone. <laughs> like, if I've acceded to that world, why can we not get those seven hours back? It feels like we can get those seven hours I, back. I'm just... I'm just just saying, you know, I'll tell you, my friend, when I was in my 20s and the person I was with and I did a sex tape. Mm-hmm. And then when we broke up, he kept the sex tape. And I've always said that <laughs> if it ever leaked 
at least I was in my 20s and less than 10% body fat. <laughs> Do you still interact with this? I, I, we have nothing else to get to. rest of the show is this. Um, what? <laughs> so I brought, so I'm all I'm saying is that, you know, I'm fully prepared for the, you know, if that happens. And I just think a certain form of president should also be for, you know, fully prepared if those seven plus hours are somehow back out there. And I don't think you're less than 10 percent body fat when you when you did the seven hours. So we're, I, yeah, we're I, don't th- I don't think he was. I don't think he was. Like, it was a 10 percent bone at this point. Like, I think he was all he was all that. OK, well, just so you know, if you're out there, I don't know who this person is that has your tape. Keep it private. Throw it away. Burn it. But just know that, like you know, I'm, LZ looks good now. So can you imagine? I mean, I mean, can you imagine? I was just saying there are, there are worse moments. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I uh, say to the end of the episode when the leaked sex tape with LZ Granderson from his twenties will be uh, streamed to you right here on Twitch.tv. Test the recount again. Less than ten percent body fat, again, baby. Again, Twitch.tv. <laughs> Slash the recount. Okay, LZ, time to move on to our first big topic, the pleasures of sports hate watching and how much I'm personally going to miss rooting against Coach K. I'm so happy that we call it crossing the bridge. There's nothing like being a regional champ and going to Final Four and playing on that Saturday with three other champions. It's an amazing day. That was Duke's men's basketball head coach, Mike Kurjawuski, no, Mike Krzyzewski, of course, <laughs> on TBS <laughs> right after the Blue Devils beat Arkansas on Saturday night, earning him a record-setting 13th trip to the Final Four, one more than the legendary John Wooden. Yes, LZ and I have spent considerable time on the show sharing our dislike to Coach K and Duke, though it really has been mostly me. But now that he's finally retiring after 42 years in Durham— I realize I'm going to miss not being able to revel in Coach K's disappointments anymore, as few as they unfortunately may be. I don't know what this says about human nature, but if you follow sports at all, you know that most fans love identifying villains and rooting at certain players and franchises almost as much, if not more, as they appreciate cheering for their heroes and favorite teams. LZ, why do you think sports hate-watching is so satisfying? Is there anyone that you have delighted in seeing fail over the years? So ever since we decided to do this as a topic, I've been trying to answer that question in earnest. And, you know, maybe it's the optimist in me, but I don't hate watch. If I really don't like an athlete or care for a team or something connects to that, that what I would do is just not watch it. (laughs) I would go do something else. I would watch for something else. Or if I'm rooting for my team, I root for my team to be excellent. I'm not cheering for the other team to be bad. And I think part of the reason why I do that is because I want to make sure that I'm cheering for a winner. I don't want to cheer for a team or an athlete who just happens to be there while the other team or athlete deconstructs or (laughs) falls to pieces or whatever. (laughs) Like, I want them to own it, to win it, to snatch it, to take it. Like the Super Bowl, for instance. I didn't want Joe Burrow to get hurt, and I certainly didn't want him to necessarily have a bad game unless that bad game was because we were playing great defense. And I wanted my defense to be excellent. I wanted Matt Stafford and the offense to be excellent, but I didn't spend a great deal of time hoping that Cincinnati would be bad. Like, that's not the way that my mind is wired. Well, you don't hate Cincinnati. You don't hate Cincinnati, so there's no reason for you to do that. But I'm just saying, I don't hate 
But it, it wouldn't give you a little extra oomph if, like, ask a New York Giants fans. You don't think it gave them a little extra oomph that when they won the Super Bowl twice, they did it over Brady both times? I actually like Tom Brady. Tom Brady is actually not one of these people like Coach K for me. But for a lot of people, he is. And certainly, mm -hmm. I think that becomes part of the value of someone like Brady. It's not just that he's the greatest. It's that he's the greatest and... Maybe he reminds you of the jerk quarterback in high school, the too good looking guy or whatever. The reasons do not have to be rational at all. I don't think my reasons for disliking Coach K, I would say they're 45 to 60% rational, but not 100% rational, <laughs> but that's okay because it, it means more to beat them. It doesn't mean anything to beat someone who's not very good or is real, who is quiet right. or is humble. No one gets excited like, yeah, we wasted Tim Duncan. Screw off Tim Duncan. Like People like Tim Duncan. It's so fun to destroy Tim Duncan. It's fun to beat LeBron. It's fun to beat Kobe. It's fun to beat these big figures. And whether you like them, whether you you don't like them it means something extra to beat them and when you have someone like coach k who i would argue has represented the worst parts of college basketball or at least the kind of old retrograde parts of college basketball that go back to bob knight in a lot of ways remember he's not a basketball coach he's a leader who happens to coach right. basketball how do you not root against a guy like that i i mean i didn't say that i was a fan I just said that I wouldn't invest my time watching them perform right. just to sit there and wallow and hate for two hours. Like Skip Bayless, what? He spent like the last 10, 15 years of his life watching LeBron James waiting for him yeah. to make mistakes. Yeah. What kind of fucking bullshit sports fan is that? That's not like, being a sports fan. Like, yeah. you know That's what not, I mean? not liking like, sports, right, right. Like if I don't like LeBron James, I'm just not going to watch his games. I wasn't a huge Floyd Mayweather fan. There are things that he has done both as an athlete and as a person that I'm just not a fan of. Ask me how many Floyd Mayweather fights I've attended or watched. <laughs> how many? Zero. Oh. Zero. Right. Now, I understand that is a extreme take to have for some people. Like, how do you not watch arguably the greatest boxer of all time? Because I don't like him. Yeah. And yeah, I, get I get no joy from watching him. So I'm just like, whatever. I just I, treat him like a whatever, which in my opinion... It's worse than hate watching. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to me, the example I always use about this is Billy Packer. Remember Billy Packer that yeah, used to do the broadcast for the Final Four? I can say this. I was running Deadspin when Billy Packer was in his heyday. Nobody, nobody, nobody was hated more than Billy Packer. <laughs> On one, one level, people hate you even if you're good, if they see you all the time. I'm one of those people right. that actually thinks Joe Buck is a pretty good announcer, but people yep. are sick of Joe Buck. And so at a certain level, all the things that you've been hearing from Joe Buck for 25 years, in the same way that you have a friend that does an annoying thing, and you're like, okay, I'll deal with the annoying thing because I want to hang out with the person, but that always annoys me. We've been listening to Joe Buck broadcast games for 25 years, inevitably it's going <laughs> to do things that irritates us. And it's fun to yell at the announcers. Billy Packer had a certain smugness. He had this weird anti-little guy thing. Nobody loved Coach K more than Billy Packer. And he became this guy when they broadcast, like, why is this guy still doing the games? I'm so sick of this guy. I hate this guy. So eventually he retired, or they pushed him out, depending on who you listen to. He was replaced by Clark Kellogg, who is a really good broadcaster and really does that a great is. job and is not nearly as hateable and therefore much more boring than Billy Packer was. <laughs> like, like, eventually they had to put Raftery on the broadcast because Raftery, who I think is great, but is also this kind of showman. Like, Kellogg is a really good broadcaster and a really good analyst, but I don't hate him. And so he's not nearly as much fun to watch as <laughs> Billy Packer so crazy. was. I didn't realize at the time. I spent the whole time watching Billy Packer. I think most people did being like, get this guy off the broadcast. It's terrible. I hate this. And then they got him off for like, oh, I kind of miss that really being annoyed <laughs> by the broadcaster. And I think we're going to have that with Coach K.
when he's gone, I will miss rooting against him. I guess for sure there are people who are like that I, and more power to him. But <laughs> I was not necessarily a Duke fan. I appreciated the excellence on the court that Coach K was able to instill while also being really disgusted by his viewpoints in terms mm. of recruiting and respectability politics and, and all of that. I see it all. But the storyteller in me, the sports fan in me, Mm -hmm. The person who never has worn a pair of Jordans, but cheered when Jordan hit the jumper over Sean mm -hmm. Marion at this last All-Star game, because <laughs> I appreciate greatness, mm -hmm. even if I don't like the person, I still appreciate the greatness. I still appreciate the greatness of Coach K. And there's a part of me that goes, man, if this motherfucker is able to guide just one more championship before he bows out, that is some dope ass shit. While also thinking... What an asshole. How do you not recruit Jalen Rose? He's a great guy, fantastic basketball player, and would have been great for your program. <laughs> That's the value of these kind of big personalities. It's impossible not to respect what he's done. It's incredible what he's been able to do. If he is able to pull off a championship... He won with Cherokee Parks! <laughs> oh, he that... won with Cherokee Parks! <laughs> That's true. Sorry. I don't think he was the least Cherokee person I've ever met in my life. <laughs> the Cherokee Parks. He's very Parks, I'll give him that. But that's the thing about Coach K. It feels like he kind of has to win or he has to lose in glorious fashion because that's who Coach K is. He's a big personality. This is who big personalities are. I brought up Bob Knight earlier, who I think was probably the mm -hmm. biggest figure in college basketball before Coach K and, of course, was Coach K's coach at Army because, of course, Coach K was coached by Bob Knight at Army. That is the founding fundamental myth right. of college basketball. But Bob Knight burnt out first when he got fired from Indiana and he choked the player and you thought, oh my gosh, this is the big culminating moment. But then he came back and coached and coached at Texas Tech and then kind of faded yep. away. And now he seems to like be in sort of a mental decline. You never got that big moment where everyone got to say, wow, there's Bob Knight's big moment. He's the greatest or right. fuck off. I hate Bob Knight. Screw that guy. Coach K is about to get that moment. Either he goes out the champion or he gets out with little snots like me being like, yeah, I got so close, but didn't get there, did you? You thought you were going to have your life culminating moment. Nope. Screw you, Coach wow. K. Do I actually believe that? Would I say that to his face? Of course I would not say that to his face. Deep down, if I saw him, I would say, congratulations, what an accomplishment, because I believe that, because that's a human being in front of me. And I think that's right. where the line is different. And that's where I draw the line. I like to think that most... Thoughtful sports fans are able to draw that line between Mike Krzyzewski is a human being who has worked very mm -hmm. hard and got to the top of his profession and deserves every single accolade that he gets and has worked incredibly hard. And then there's sports fan me, which is that like, Duke stings, go away, blah. And I would argue where those things meet is actually excellence. Nobody cares if Coach K is a crappy basketball coach, even if he's the exact same guy. I don't know what makes him a great basketball coach. I'm not in practices. All I know is he is, and therefore has reached a level where I'm sick of him and want him to go away. Except when he goes away, I will totally miss him. <laughs> and that is that sports. That's sports <laughs> fandom, right? That to it me is, is what sports is, fandom is about. It is absolutely sports fandom. Favorite Duke game during Coach K's tenure. And while you think, mm -hmm. I will share with you mine oh, yes, so you please. have more time to think about yes. it. Yes. Because I thought about that this weekend. Like, what would I remember Coach K most for? And for me, I think it was the championship run in which he was able to avenge the loss against UNLV, mm -hmm. who had thoroughly embarrassed them the season before. To me, to hold those young men together, 
to keep them singularly focused on revenge. <laughs> yeah. And then when the opportunity presented itself to be able to go blow for blow with your tormentor to the point in which your tormentor wilted under pressure, mm -hmm. I just was completely blown away because it wasn't simply being out talented, right? That Duke squad was very talented, but that UNLV squad, that was a talented squad too. To be able to keep that squad together, knowing that you had the talent, but that he had to instill and help them direct that anguish and that mental fortitude. That, to me, epitomized why Coach K has been so successful. Because he has had a consistent ability to keep the players on his team focused on the task at hand. My good buddy, George Sedano, used to tell me that one of the things that LeBron talked about a lot that he got from Spolstra when he was in Miami was about keeping the main thing the main thing. And I think Coach K has been really good at when it got time to actually playing basketball, helping get his guys stay focused on the main thing. And that's the reason why he's been so successful. It isn't just about talent. There's a whole lot of schools with talent that couldn't get the shit done. He was able to help them stay focused. And that is one of the games that kind of epitomizes that for me. Yeah. What about you? That's a good one. And that's also back when Duke almost felt like an underdog, right? I would argue what you're talking about there is actually what he's doing really well with this year's team. They mm -hmm. have actually shown more metal in getting to the Final Four than I actually thought they had. They had a game earlier where they were in real trouble, <laughs> and uh, they were able to yeah, come back. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, so that's impressive. For me, the Duke thing, before we move on, of course, it's a moment that I almost got to see Coach K fail, which was the famous <laughs> Duke-Butler game in Indianapolis, where Gordon Hayward shot from like three-quarters yeah. court. I, Just I firmly believe if that shot goes in, in Indianapolis— Talk about the ultimate underdog, freaking Butler right. against Duke with the town they play in. If that shot goes in, right. I legitimately think it's one of the greatest moments in sports history. I think it's just one of the oh, most God, incredible yeah. things that just rimmed just out. That's a, another example of my overarching point. If Butler is beating like Baylor or Texas Tech <laughs> in that game, right. it doesn't matter. It's that it's Duke. I've just arbitrarily decided that they're the bad guy. That's what being a sports fan is. And that's why I would have meant more. Oh, my God. You're so ridiculous. A ridiculous like He's a fox. A so bit. close. That would have been amazing. So close. Would have been absolutely so, so close. All right, Will, let's go on to our next topic. The death of the baseball purist, which many say is long overdue. I love our game. Having said that, um, since I've been commissioner, I've talked about the need uh, to make changes in some of our rules to enhance the entertainment value of our product for the benefit of our fans. Uh, and I think the new agreement opens an opportunity that we can work with the players to make sure that we make good rule changes that works for our fans, works for our players. That was the commissioner of Major League Baseball, Rob Manfred, talking to reporters earlier this month after he announced that owners and players had reached a deal on a new collective bargaining agreement, much to the delight of my friend Will Leach. The terms of the CBA include some notable rule changes, like the universal designated hitter and the, quote, ghost runner in the extra innings. But most importantly, the commissioner now has the authority to make adjustments to baseball's on-field product with only 45 days' notice, which is much shorter than the period it takes for me to cancel my gym membership. And that's significant. 
the baseball part, not my gym membership. Because hmm. the changes on the horizon are expected to be the most consequential in decades. It's no secret that baseball has an entertainment value problem. Over the last 10 years or so, the pace of games have slowed dramatically, and the number of balls in play are far fewer as well. There is more dead time in games than ever, and the league wants this fixed, thankfully. So, by next year, you'll likely see larger bases to entice more base stealing, a pitch clock to increase the pace of games, and the limiting of defensive shifts to make hits easier to come by. Hardcore baseball fans are decrying many of these changes because they love that the established ways of baseball have largely stayed constant over many decades. But the NFL and the NBA are constantly tinkering with their rules to make each sport more exciting to the point that they are almost unrecognizable today compared to the games we watched when we were kids. And they're as popular as ever. But well, is it time to forget about the past? Cater to the taste of today's entertainment audiences and let Spider-Man play baseball. No, <laughs> and bury the game's purest. Spider-Man will never play baseball better than Bugs Bunny play baseball. Oh, Bunny man. Is... I feel bad for these kids, man. Oh, yeah. They're growing up without cartoons like that. But on a side note, my kids have started getting into old Looney Tunes cartoons, which is great, except everyone's always be like, oh, no, wait, that one's super racist. Sorry, you can't watch yeah, that yeah, one. watch out for the racist <laughs> yeah, yeah. ones. Please be careful oh. on that one. And also, you may want him to stay away from Pepe Le Pew, yeah. who is literally just stalking a woman for entertainment yeah, all sorts of, that, all sorts of it's yeah, great the ones during world war ii <laughs> oof easy easy but anyway now that i think about it why the hell are you letting william watch those cartoons <laughs> <laughs> anyway baseball's my favorite sport i'd like to note the bobblehead over my left shoulder right now is albert pools who is returning to the st louis cardinals after 11 years my son was born a month after the world series in 2011 has never seen him in a cardinals uniform i will try to remind him uh-huh. he was not always so big and old there were moments watching Albert Pujols last season when he was with the Dodgers that felt as if first base was moving away from him. Yeah, and that's he was the best year he's had in like four years. So, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, is he ever going to reach yeah, that base? Yeah, definitely has that. But it's funny because this is the thing about baseball. I actually think the Pujols thing is a good launching point for this, which is the idea baseball is a sport that is forever locked in its past. There's a great joke about baseball. You can always tell how old someone is by when they say the best era of baseball was because it's always when they were like 14 or 15. <laughs> I fell in love with the game when I was about eight or nine with those really awesome Cardinals teams who had stole all the bases, Vince Coleman, William McGee, super, super fun teams, the, the whole Whitey Herzog teams, awesome teams. And so the part of me that always feels like baseball is a triple in the gap and, and double steals and all of those sort of things. The game has evolved away from that as players have gotten bigger, as pitchers have thrown harder. It's just not really efficient to steal bases like that anymore. The seven-year-old in me is upset by that. The grown-up is a grown-up and understands that the world (laughs) cannot be the way you want it to be when you're eight years old forever. And I think that's generally been one of the problems with baseball fans, not just today, but really throughout the years. I always remember when the wild card was first introduced in the mid-90s. Listen, you love Bob Costas. I mostly love Bob Costas. No one is against Bob Costas here, but I think he's kind of patterned himself as like the old school baseball guy. Him and Billy Crystal are like sitting in a room drinking Ovaltine, talking about the 1961 Yankees somewhere right now. And I remember his big thing was always... Well, the wild card's going to ruin base. That's not what baseball is. The division's supposed to mean something. And you know what? The wild card's fine. No one's even thought about the wild card. Of course, there's a wild card. Nobody even thinks about the wild card anymore. The designated hitter is finally coming to the National League this year after people fighting violently over it for 30 years. And it just happened. And now it's fine. And no one's going to think about it in five years. People always talk about baseball getting its own way. And I think on a certain level, Major League Baseball, like the official 
business does that. We saw that during the lockout. I also would argue the fans, however, make this mistake a lot. And if you contrast what baseball does to like the NBA and the NFL, my example I always use is the writer Chuck Klosterman once wrote about how in the NBA, you can call timeout underneath your own basket and that timeout changes the rules of space and time. No time changes, but you are able to move. <laughs> oh, come on now. It makes all the sense in the world. You are able to move the ball and move everyone to midcourt. It is illogical. It is irrational. It's against the spirit of what basketball and sports are supposed to be. However, it is awesome and makes it more fun. So that's why you do it. And nobody complains about it. And I would argue that baseball right. has always kind of had this problem. The NFL and the NBA, and even to a lesser extent, the NHL and some soccer leagues have changed the rules to make them more fun to watch. I always hear people argue like, well, what 15-year-old out there is like, well, I'll watch baseball or I won't watch baseball. Well, depend or not whether there's a zombie runner on second base. That's not the point. The point is you look at parts (laughs) of your games that are not particularly entertaining and not pleasant for people to go through and you do something to make them more pleasant. If you do that little bit by little bit by little bit, the product improves. And sure, there's a part of me that still feels weird that every time I see advertisements on the outfield walls, I feel like I'm in a crappy little league stadium and now they're everywhere because they used to not be like that. Change is hard. As you get older, it's one of the things that makes you a mature, grown human being is you adjust to change or you storm the Capitol. I don't know. It depends on where you land on either one of those things. But for me, baseball has always fallen into this problem of thinking the game was somehow better before. So I look at these new changes and I am hopeful for those changes because I think it's baseball getting closer to the NFL and the NBA and trying to make the product a little bit more dynamic. It's really interesting, man, because I I think sports might be the only field we have in this culture that is not only slow to change, but doesn't want it, is aggressively trying to stop change. (laughs) They're they're inherently conservative. Sports are inherently conservative. But but you know what's interesting, though? The owners of these teams are not that way, because if they were, they would have lost their businesses and not be able to be owners. So for every other aspect of their lives, they recognize the importance of being nimble in a changing society. But for some reason, there's one little area we just want to build a concrete wall around and say, this is the way we did it 80 years ago, and this is the way we're going to do it today. Why? Like, seriously, the music of Aretha Franklin did not get lessened by the fact that she could be streamed versus playing an LP. Now, (laughs) is the process of listening to her music different? Yes. Do I enjoy getting the little needle and placing it on records? Yes, I do like that. And I like the crackling sound. Mm -hmm. I love that. Love all of that. I also love grabbing my phone (laughs) and go, what was that one Aretha song? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Boom. I love that too. (laughs) And guess what? It's still good music. Yeah, yeah. All of a sudden now, because Aretha is streamed, that doesn't mean I forget what she sounded like in the 1960s and 70s. (laughs) But when it comes to sports, we're like, oh, if you did this, then, you know, the past is gone or the history has been damaged or blah, 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 blah. Or the sport, like every other aspect of life, is evolving. And I just feel that when it comes to baseball, hopefully, you know, Will, we're at this point now where the sport can be more accepting of ways to be more a part of modern day society than what it is today. Because it is a beautiful sport. It is the sport that I spent the most time around, believe it or not, because the Detroit Tigers were playing right in Detroit 
whereas the Pistons and the Lions, the football and basketball teams, were in the suburbs where I could not as a kid get to. And to be quite honest with you, they were in predominantly white suburbs and they didn't want my black ass out there because they resisted trying to get public transportation to take us to these distant places in the suburbs. But I live baseball, in Georgia. I know nothing about that. I know uh-huh. nothing about that living in Georgia. <laughs> nothing at all. But in Detroit, the Tigers played in Detroit. So it was the sport that I got to be around the most. And I absolutely love it. And I hate the fact that it no longer holds that place in the city. And I hate the fact it no longer holds that place in the country. But I definitely understand why it's lost its place in the city and why it's lost its place in the country. And it's a large part because of these conversations. You didn't want to change and we left you behind. So here's an opportunity to catch back up. Yeah, and that's why I hate these binary conversations. I get in an argument with someone who wants baseball to not change. That's always what they say. Well, who is this 13-year-old? Who, who is going to put down their phone and say, okay, well, if you make double headers, only seven innings, now I'll watch. I'm like, no, right. there is no hypothetical 13-year-old that does that. But you have to make these things incremental. You have to take steps forward to people. I love baseball. If baseball never changes, I'm going to be happy. If baseball changes, I'm also going to be happy. I'm curious your thoughts about this. I wonder if it's because there is something partly, if I'm being honest, a little childish about loving sports. Someone asked me the, uh, a couple of weeks ago if I would ever get a tattoo. I have no tattoos. And they said, I bet the only thing you'd ever get would be either a Cardinals logo or like an Illini orange and blue eye. I, and I think that's probably true because not because I like care so much that I have people to see it, but it's the one thing I know I loved when I was eight and I will love when I am 98. But it started when I was eight. And so I think that our connection to these things are always when we're children This is why keep politics out of sports happens, right? Because people don't want to have the conflicting difficulty of the mature adult world cross over into the happy land of spring training and baseball and people mowing freshly cut grass. I guess you don't mow that. You mow it and make it freshly cut grass. But you know what I mean? I'm curious if you agree if there's something to the fact that like there's a state of arrested development sometimes when people avoid change because they want to go back to when they were mm-hmm. kids, when things were simpler. They weren't simpler, but they were children and children are dumber. And so therefore they don't know what's going on. <laughs> I would like on. to say less experienced than dumber. Okay, fine, 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 fine. Less experienced, <laughs> though you have not seen my son try to tie his shoe, his cleats on first base. But uh, nevertheless- I blame you. I blame I, oh, you for that there's, because there's, he's there's a Browns no fan. There's no question. I love the fact that you brought up the childlike quality of sports. Because much of what we do is trying to sustain this arrested development. I mean, we just have this joke about the Oscars. Well, we have a multi-billion dollar industry that's been around for well over 100 years to play make-believe for adults. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, In their pajamas. In a, right, right, right. I mean, it's adults playing make-believe for people who want to fantasize about a place far away from where they are. Or they wanted to see a story that they may not have seen before. Or they wanted to see someone fall in love. The point being is that there is this fantastical aspect to much of what we do in society because we do want to maintain that naivete, that joy. Before we were introduced to cynicism and hate. And sports for a lot of people is also that sort of vehicle, right, to reminisce or remake that time period, you know, because the way they remember baseball wasn't actually the way that it happened. <laughs> but yeah. with time, we forget the bad parts, right? <laughs> yeah, or they didn't know that part in the first place because they were a kid. Oh, I would think you would probably notice if there weren't any black people in the field all that time. So, you know, I, I think now perhaps 
we are seeing generations on top of generations come to us and come to its own in society much faster. Like the distance between Gen X, which is, you know, essentially our generation Mm -hmm. and the generation of whatever there are now, (laughs) the age gaps aren't as big as they used to be. There's like four different generations between X and someone who's 17. You can fit six of them in X. Right. (laughs) That wasn't the way it used to be. But because culture is changing so quickly because of technology, we're no longer holding on to what we think generations represent now. We don't look at people for the cues. We look at technology for the cues for generational changes. And I think when it comes to baseball, now that you have a society that's become more accustomed to allowing technology to change the way we used to do things faster, that maybe baseball can now have some comfort in knowing that it's okay to change because everything's changing faster, yet we're still slower than the fast change. But we're still changing. (laughs) So there's a happy medium. Yeah. Okay, Will, it's time for This Week in Sports History, where we break down an event from the past through the lens of 2022. I take this as sort of a in a way very personal. For two years, I mean, I've tried. It gets to be a personal, very personal to me when uh, someone that I thought would at least pick up the phone and say to me, I'm going. Uh, But we didn't. That was the mayor of Baltimore, William Schaefer, soon after the Colts fled the city in the middle of the night for Indianapolis, 38 years ago this week. The move was a terrible blow to one of the most diehard fan bases in the NFL, which has staunchly supported the Colts since 1953 and has seen it win the NFL championships in 1958 and 1959 and a Super Bowl in 1970. Unfortunately, the Colts played in Memorial Stadium, which was one of the worst facilities in the league. And when owner Robert Ursay took over the franchise in 1972, he lobbied the city of Baltimore hard to build him a new venue. However, in 1974, Baltimore's comptroller placed an amendment to the city's charter on the fall ballot that prohibited the use of city funds for construction of a new stadium. And when the measure passed, the writing was on the wall. On March 2nd, 1984, NFL owners voted to allow Ursay to move the Colts to the city of his choosing. The Maryland Senate countered by passing legislation on March 27th that gave Baltimore the right to seize ownership of the Colts by eminent domain. Fearing that he could lose his team, Ursay accepted the terms of an offer from Indianapolis the next day. Immediately, the mayor of Indianapolis called his friend, the CEO of Mayflower Transit, an Indiana-based moving company, and asked him to help move the team. 15 Mayflower trucks arrived at the Colts facility at around 10 p.m. that evening, and within eight hours, the Colts were gone from Baltimore. Heartbroken Baltimore fans ultimately repealed that city amendment so public funds could be used to build a new stadium. And in 1995, the NFL returned to Baltimore. Will, it's as true now as it was then that teams covet lucrative stadium deals. But is it safe to say we won't see a franchise leave a city in the dead of night ever again? My God, I have to say, just when you you read through the details of this story, I was a kid when this happened. And so I didn't quite comprehend that, like, 
I just figured like, well, they were moving. So when were they going to move? <laughs> no, literally like, under the cover of darkness, like, yes. <laughs> like just escaping. Like super is... darkness, not even evening. They wanted that shit black. It is un- <laughs> 10 unbelievable. And, you know, it's funny. It always reminds me a little bit of when I was a kid, my dad, we used to go to Cardinals games and he would put me on the back of his motorcycle. Neither one of us wearing a helmet and I would just hold on to his jacket for two hours on the interstate. And that was how I made it. I tell my kids this story now. They are buckled in, in suits of armor, locked into every spot. And I'll be like, you know, when I was a kid, this is how we got to St. Louis. This feels like one of those stories for me. The idea that you could live in a media universe where they're like, wait, they're going to seize it by in the domain? Glam it! Get a, get going! Right. We gotta get out of here! Right. It's absolutely wild. We hear all these stories about media, about how it's different now. There's fewer beat reporters and there's fewer people covering these stories and how sometimes teams can get away with stuff. And I think you see that at a certain level. I would posit to say it would be impossible to do this today. (laughs) The minute that someone got out there with a smartphone and be like, wait, there's like 10 fucking trucks out there. Hey, that's an Indianapolis company. Now you see people track coaches' private planes to see where they're going somewhere. The idea they could pull this off... It's as close as sports is going to get to like an Ocean's Eleven movie, except that these are the bad guys, right? This is the Andy Garcia character sneaking out in the dead of night and pulling off a heist. It's it's completely wild. It's it's so wild, man. And, you know, I agree 1000% with you. It's an, it would be impossible to be able to do something like that in today's time. But I would argue the reason why it's impossible is because this shit happened. Right. You know, think think about it for a second. <laughs> this happened during the days when newspapers were robust. Yeah. And teams, particularly football teams, they would have multiple beat reporters for one team, depending upon which city you're talking about. That's how robust this industry was. And the reason why I'm pointing that out is because this is a story that impacts City Hall in addition to sports, in addition to transportation and business like there are so many tentacles to this story that would have touched so many reporters the idea they were able to execute this in darkness for the most part with that many reporters on the scene tells you just how no one thought this shit was possible no one considered like not any of these reporters thought for one second these motherfuckers were going to sneak out of the city in the dead of night like that So I would argue that the reason why nothing like this could ever happen again, because all it takes is for once and every person now is just going, hey, 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 I heard they're not getting a new stadium. Keep your eye out on the the facility. Keep an eye out on Bidwell over there. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Right? And I think that's true. It is. No one will ever try this again for that reason that you talk about. But there's something incredible. I mean, the state of Maryland passed like they passed a law right like this is like and also which doesn't seem constitutional by the way also seems weird that the mayor of indianapolis was like oh i gotcha i gotcha i gotcha i got a guy (laughs) i know dude (laughs) it's really absolutely nuts when you think about it think about this part of it too this is football right which is supposed to be this sort of game where nothing but men and giants and gods <laughs> yeah. clash. And that's one of the most bitch-ass moves oh, in the history of mankind. <laughs> Not just sports, 
to move a company, a multi-million dollar company in the dead of night because you're afraid fans are going to say boo. Yeah, and you got to get out before the state <laughs> the sheriff stops you. <laughs> right, 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 right. And I'm just like, are you kidding? What kind of nonsense uh, is this? Oh my goodness. But it's such, it's such a great story. And it also just speaks to the fact that at that particular time period of the NFL, there was still very much a wild, wild mm. west aspect to all of it, which is why things like the White House in Dallas could happen, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> where, where players are, they literally have a house where all they're doing is have orgies and using cocaine. <laughs> like, I mean, like, it's got a name. It's got a name that everyone knows what you're yeah, referring to. <laughs> right. It just reminds me of like just that period of time where the NFL would take domestic violence so lightly that Lawrence Phillips could be drafted fifth overall after all of the allegations. Not even like a hesitation. Wasn't even a speed bump. Well, Dick Vermeil was going to put his arm around his shoulder and talk to him. Oh, okay. That was going to take care of it. Right. But that was the period of the NFL and just how much of a wild, wild west sort of sports entity it was at that time period. And while a lot of it's crazy still today, when you think about it, shouts out to you, Cleveland Browns and Deshaun Watson, there is some sort of corporate nature and professionalism to it so that it isn't quite as crazy as it was during the time period in which you can move your franchise at one o'clock in the morning and hopefully no one hears the screwdriver fall out of the truck. Well, I mean, honestly, now the NFL has paid off the Maryland legislature and they never have to get to this point. So that's like, like, yeah, that's we the do business differently now. Yeah, exactly. I think it's just as corrupt, if not more corrupt. It's just that now everybody knows a guy. I'll put it that way. Now like everybody, everybody, now everybody knows the guy. Oh, amazing! Wow. I, I have to say, the, a the story is amazing. B, your read on it was so wonderful. I think there's a thirty for thirty about this. I want to go watch it right now. I kind of can't wait to get to this. Oh, pretty oh amazing! Pretty amazing! I love it when stuff like that happens. Okay, LZ, let's move on to our listener questions, which Megan, our favorite producer, has been compiling during the show. I believe that she is here. Is she here? Hello? Hello? I'm here. Hi, Megan. How's it going? Hello. Good. We only have time for one today. We talked about new changes that Major League Baseball is making to the game. The NFL is also doing some new changes to their rules. Um, and noteworthy, Megabucks11 commented, so today the NFL announced a change to the Rooney Rule. Teams now have to hire a minority or a woman in an offensive coaching position. What are your thoughts? It's bullshit, <laughs> but whatever. I mean, what do you want yeah. me to it, say? It feels... We're still talking about instituting rules to make sure that other people besides cisgender, heterosexual white men are included in the coaching ranks in the NFL. We're still trying to find a rule for something that really just takes a change of heart. Another change to the rule is that it has to be in person. Did you see that one? What? Any interviews that they do have to be in person now. I don't know why that's <laughs> better. I would argue that's arguably worse, actually. I'm surprised they did not just get rid of the Rooney Rule and find something else. The idea that, that they looked at what happened, what's still happening, by the way, because there's stories that there are more people being added to the Flores lawsuit. They would look at that and be like, you know what? Just tweak the Rooney Rule a little bit. Let's just adjust it around the edges. Every single one of these complaints were all like, the Rooney rule is bullshit. Basically, the adjustments to these rules really feel not like, hey, let's figure out a way 
to get more black candidates and more women candidates and more non-cisgender white males candidates. It seems more like, hey, all the ways that people are trying to get around this rule, let's try to close those loopholes, right. which is really what the changes look like. <laughs> and that's the reason why I was like, this is just more bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Because it's like playing whack-a-mole with racism. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's like, like yeah. the issue yeah. isn't you can't hit the mole. The issue is there's a mole. There's moles everywhere. <laughs> the mole is everywhere, right? <laughs> it's not, oh, well, we just need a, a bigger mallet, then we'll be able to get yeah. it. No. Yeah. Its existence is the problem. And the fact that rules about the way that we interact with one another when it comes to services and access to public services and what's instituted in the Constitution and what other laws are brought in, whether they're the civil rights or Title IX, like, you know, all of that, right? At the end of the day, if you don't have people who are willing on an interpersonal level treat each other with humanity— None of these laws are going to really change culture. It might change behavior, but to change culture, it needs to be on a real grassroots level, meaning it's up to the team owners amongst themselves to figure out why this keeps occurring and more importantly, to change this culture on their own to be motivated to want the NFL to reflect the society in which it gets to be a part of. And if you don't do that from an interpersonal perspective, you can slap on all the rules in the world that you want. But guess what? They're just going to gerrymander the district. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, (laughs) there's going to be ways around it. We're just going to erase seven and a half fucking hours of my White House logs. Like, (laughs) they're going to find ways (laughs) around it. If they want to do something bad, they're going to do something bad. The, The goal should be to try to get them to see how something bad, like not having minorities and women be part of the NFL fabric, in a real significant way, is that you're limiting your ability to actually grow your business. You're limiting your ability to be even bigger and better than what you already are. There are real tangible benefits for maximizing the talent pool. And it's about getting people to understand that, not getting people to follow rules. Because if they understood the talent pool and what's being lost and left behind in the talent pool, you won't need a rule. You know, it's the same thing that came with integrating sports to begin with. Once they found out black people could play sports, you didn't need a rule telling them to get out in the field. It was like, (laughs) shit, there's some good talent over here. Let's go get it. The same is applicable when it comes to coaching. So, you know, Goodell and the guys and the handful of women that are engaged in these policy changes, I appreciate trying to change behavior and changing behavior is a good step when you can't change culture. But we should never forget that you can't substitute the change of culture with a change of behavior. At the end of the day, it's about the change of culture first, and then you won't have to worry about as many rules and certainly any tweaks like the one that we just discussed. If you just put a series of cones (laughs) on the walkway away from racism, they'll just follow uh... the cones. Well, I figured once we wrote it in the end zone really big and no one decided to follow through on it that, you know, that maybe the cones wouldn't work either. I'm saying it, it, it comes down to us. It comes down to us. It all comes down to us. All right. When we return, we're going to play Cheddar Brain. And all I can say is, LZ, prepare to be vanquished. 
Vanquished? <laughs> yeah. That sound is so violent. <laughs> Vanquished, you know. <laughs> Eviscerated. All right, LZ, we're back. On Wednesday, March 30th at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, the recount will premiere Chatterbrain, colon, the news game show, which will test contestants on their knowledge of recent news and trivia. You'll be able to find the show on Twitch at twitch.tv slash the recount. Again, twitch.tv slash the recount. And guess what? LZ, you and I are going to play a special edition of Chatterbrain right now. Hosts Slade Somer and Molly Rubin, who are right next to me, I have them right here. They're really ready to go. They are ready to join us to test our sports knowledge. And LZ, I just want you to know that I am highly motivated to avenge my loss to you in our long game NFL playoff draft. And frankly, my loss to you in everything I do forever, all of the time. So please let the games begin. Slade, Molly, take it away. All right. We are as excited as could be possible. So the game in general is going to test people's knowledge of politics, tech, business, culture, all that stuff. But because I was coming on a sports podcast and my favorite sports podcast as it is, I wrote questions Mm -hmm. specifically in the world of sports. Every single question will be in the world of sports. And I think you will both do really, really well. So Molly, explain our first category. Sure. Yeah. So round one is called the Weekly Wire, and normally there are three categories with four multiple choice current event questions in the category of politics, culture, or business tech. And all of these stories appear on the Recount Wire, which is our video stream that we have on Twitter and also on our website. The point values ascend and the questions get harder as they do. So Slade will ask you a question and you'll have 10 seconds to write down your answer, one, two, three, or four. And then he'll ask you to reveal your answer. I'll reveal the correct answer. And today we'll play only one round appropriately called sports. So one category, just sports. And Slade will ask four questions worth up to 10 points. Yeah, we're going to take this super seriously. And at the end of it, one person will just have no integrity left. Okay, here we go. Round one, question one, worth one point. Still facing 22 civil lawsuits filed by women who've accused him of sexual misconduct, Deshaun Watson announced himself as the new quarterback of the Cleveland Browns this weekend, signing a guaranteed mega deal in the process. How much is this new deal worth divided by the number of Watson's career postseason wins? Is it one... 57.5 million, two, 76.7 million, three, 115 million, or four, 230 million. So we're looking for the overall deal divided by the number of career postseason wins for Deshaun Watson. And when you're ready, hold up your piece of paper. Okay, you ready? All righty, ready. Yep, okay. reveal. I put four. I also put four for $230 million. Yes. That is Molly? That is correct. The All is right. four. All right, so the deal is worth $230 million. Deshaun Watson has played three postseason games, but only won one of them. $230 million divided by one remains $230 million. One point four each contestant. All <laughs> right, we're going to get into question number two. End of an era. 
This is worth two points. 14-time WWE World Champion Triple H unfortunately called it quits after 30 years in the wrestling ring. Triple H got emotional, breaking the news to Stephen A. Smith last week, revealing which issue forced him into retirement. Is it one, bum knees, two, heart surgery, three, concussions, or four, steroid hangovers? On the count of three, reveal right. your answers. One, two, three. I put two. I put two as well. All right, so we got two twos. Molly, what do we got? That is, again, the correct answer. You guys know your All stuff. Right. All right. Two points. Uh, for the record, I feel obliged to point out wrestling is not sports. I will die on this hill. This is, it is not sports. I didn't grow up in wrestling. Sports so. entertainment adjacent. Yes. Keyword. Since we're telling the truth, I'll be honest with you. That was a complete guess. If that man were to walk into my house, I would have no idea who he was. I haven't watched <laughs> wrestling since Leaper Lanny Popo. Uh, Weeping Lenny Papa was uh, Randy Macho Man Savage's brother and a minor league baseball player. So there's some sports for you. As a former Gawker Media employee, I'm very familiar with Hulk Hogan. That's right. <laughs> but, um, moving, yeah. Well done. Well on. done. Nice. I missed that story. I missed that story completely. Okay. Question number three. So you each have three points. Question number three is worth three points. Canada is locked in and the United States is all but certain to make the World Cup later this year. But shock of all shocks, four-time winner and defending European champions Italy will miss its second straight World Cup after being knocked out by which footballing minnow in extra time last week? Was it one, mm. North Macedonia, two, Luxembourg, three, Malta, or four, Faroe Islands? I actually know this one, and I don't think LZ does, so I just hope he guesses incorrectly. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so for three points... Reveal your answers. I'm waiting for LZ to put his up. I'm waiting for Will. Wait, all right, one, <laughs> one, two, two, one, three. Two, three. Here we go. All right, the Rams. Rams. <laughs> yeah, because the Rams won. So I picked one. Yeah, no, that's, uh, oh, that's, oh, really? Right. He's right. Oh, okay. <laughs> I wrote Rams because yeah. Rams won. There you go. Yeah, that's, right. Right. So smart. that's a homonym. You guys are both <laughs> correct then. It is one, North Macedonia, which is a very impressive feat for this team because they only became a country in 2019. <laughs> or the name North Macedonia only started getting right. used in 2019. So very impressive. Very. They've got a chance to beat Ronaldo in Portugal that's this right. week and knock him out of the that's World right. Cup, which I, I have to say I would find delightful. I All would right, that. so six points. We're going to move it along. we got six points each for LZ and Will here. Mm -hmm. So this is the final question in the Weekly Wire, and it goes as follows. Senator Bernie Sanders gleefully introduced a bill that would target Major League Baseball's antitrust exemption. And that's something that the Senate Judiciary Committee looked into during the 1994-95 work stoppage as well. So let's flash back to the 1995-144 game season. Which player became the first person in Major League Baseball history to hit 50 homers and have 50 doubles in the same season? Was it one, Frank Thomas, two, Rafael Palmeiro, three, Albert Bell, or four, Dante Bichette. Hmm. Uh, okay. We count down from an five, and then we're going to both reveal five, four, three, two, one, reveal. I went three. Three from both. Molly? 
That is correct. Elsie, I love your yeah. creative answer for This is really keeping <laughs> me you. on my toes. <laughs> uh, so you both get four points. It is Albert Bell. That's right. Mr. Court Bat himself, Albert Bell. <laughs> he has some anger issues. He sure did. But he was a force in the mid-90s. And as a Yankee fan, could not have hated him anymore. Uh, all right. So you both did really well getting 10 points in that round out of a possible 10. And we're going to move on to round two. Molly, give us a quick explanation. All right. So round two is called the Wall of Fame, Wall of Shame. There will be a changing theme every week. This week, it's fame and shame. So 10 points are on the line, 10 seconds to answer each. All right. Let's dive right into it. Round two. All right. First question, the Wall of Fame. Monica Seles was inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame in 2009, about 16 years after being stabbed by the crazed fan of Arrival. Seles may have gone on to be the most dominant athlete of all time in their sport. From 1991 to 1993, before the incident, Seles had a 93% win percentage that included a 55-1 win-loss record in Grand Slam tournaments. She won eight Grand Slams before her 20th birthday. Which of the four majors did Celis not win? Was it one, the Australian Open, two, the French Open, three, Wimbledon, or four, the U.S. Open? All right, I'm going to count down from three, two, one, reveal. I'm going to go with three. I'm going with two. We have a disagreement. Ooh, our first divergence. Our first disagreement of the game. Well, I'm excited to let you know, LZ, that you are correct. It is three. I knew I was going to miss the two. That's right. Monica Smith actually won the French Open at 16 years old. Yes. So that is uh, one point uh, for LZ. So I believe it is 11-10. Is that, that correct? Is correct? Can we quit now? No. Let's stop the count. <laughs> All right. So uh, we're going to move on to number two, the wall of shame. In 1962, a baseball catcher named Harry Cheedy hit the record books for accomplishing which feat? Was it one? He was a knuckleball specialist, but he allowed the most pass balls in a single game with six. Was it two? He twice messed up his pitcher's perfect games by dropping a third strike and allowing the runner to advance. Was it three? He became the first person in history to be traded for a player to be named later, which turned out to be himself. Or was it four? He <laughs> set the record for most errors in a single season by a catcher with 62 in 62. All right. On the count of hmm. three, go ahead and reveal one, two, three. One, two. I'm going two. Interesting. Another disagreement. Well... Unfortunately, neither of you. It's four. It's four. <laughs> no. No, it's not four. It is it's three. It is three. He was he traded for himself. Harry Cheedy was traded from the Cleveland Indians to the New York Mets in 1962 for a player to be named later. And then he was traded back three weeks later to the Indians. Never played another game for the <laughs> Indians. Went down to minor league ball. But he was the first player ever to be traded for himself. Oh, wow. Incredible. Yeah. So yeah, we are back is, to 1110 LZ over Will. We'll go to question number three, back to fame. At the age of 25, third-year phenom Wilt Chamberlain averaged 50.4 points and 25.7 rebounds a game. In fact, Chamberlain put up 50 and 25 in nearly 70 games in his career, something that only five other players have ever done even once in the history of the NBA. Four of them are old-timers. Elgin Baylor, Bob Pettit, Elvin Hayes, and George Mikan. 
What more recent NBA player was the fifth person to do it? Was it one, Hakeem Olajuwon, two, Dwight Howard, three, Kevin Garnett, or four, Chris Webber? You'll have three seconds. Two, hmm. one, reveal. We got a four and a one from LZ. Will's got four. LZ's got one. Molly, tell us the answer. Well, I'm excited to let Will know that the correct answer is four. Chris Webber. Yes. Chris Webber did it in a 2001 game. Chris Webber got 50 or 25. Yeah. Yeah. 50 yeah. He got 50 he was being awesome. able only to shoot a little hook shot. Because <laughs> he had no jumper back then. They were a fast team, though. They were fat. That team was really yeah, fast. Really, really was. That's okay, true. so that's three points to Will. So it's 13-11. Will takes the lead. And our final mm. question in the second round. This is a shame question, and it is one of my all-time favorite stories about a web of lies that went out of control. In 2007, a footballer named Stephen Ireland refused a call-up to his national team. At first, he said his maternal grandmother had died. When journalists were shocked to find her alive, he said, no, it was his paternal grandmother who died. When she turned up alive, he said it was his step-grandmother who died. Again, he was exposed. Ireland finally revealed that he just wanted to go visit his lonely girlfriend. Which country's <laughs> national team went on to lose to the Czech Republic without their lying midfielder, Stephen Ireland? Was it one, England, two, Ireland, three, Northern Ireland, or four, Scotland? On the count of three, reveal... One, two, three. I went with three. So unfortunately, neither of you are correct. <laughs> Fortunate for me. Fortunate for me. Okay. <laughs> That's true. Well, the lying <laughs> midfielder, Stephen Ireland, played for Ireland. Ah, a little uh, bit of a tricky question. We all ourselves. A little bit of a tricky question. All right. So after hmm. round two, it is 13 Will, 11 LZ, and Molly, take us in. This is going to be a three-question round, so we can wrap this up and you can get back to your business. Molly, tell us what's going on. All right, so round three. Today, we're calling it Beat Each Other. We'll just play the best of three. Will versus LZ, one point each. We're going to make this two points each because it is such a highly oh. contested game. Exciting. And the first category is called Time Machine. 37 years ago, on March 2nd, 1985, CBS aired an episode of Murder, She Wrote, called Sudden Death. In this classic season two episode, renowned mystery writer and super sleuth Jessica Fletcher inherits from her uncle a crucial 4% stake in a fictional NFL team called the Leopards. Two actual athletes starred in this episode. One was Caitlyn Jenner, and the other is which football player turned actor? Was it one, Fred Dreyer, two, Dick Buckus, three, O.J. Simpson, or four, Jim Brown? On the count of three, reveal one, two, three. We got a one from Will and a two from LZ. Ooh. Molly? Exciting. The correct answer is two. Unfortunately ah. named Dick Buckus. <laughs> a line eye uh, legend. I feel obliged to point that's right. out. That's right. Fortunate for whom? That guy that's right. <laughs> okay, so we are tied at 13 with our final two questions on the line. It's a nail biter. Okay, here we go. Deep quote is the category of this. 
A poem by Boston Post sports editor Gerald Hearn inspired the popular baseball catchphrase, spawn insane and pray for rain. Such was the state of the Boston Braves pitching rotation with a silly good tandem of Warren Spawn and Johnny Sane and nobody else. In which year was this the Boston Braves fans rallying cry? Was it one, 1943, two, 1948, three, 1951, or four, 1954? On the count of three, reveal one, two, three. Both answered three. Three and three, very confident. Unfortunately, no, it is two. <laughs> oh. 1948. The 1948 uh, Boston Braves. I forgot to carry the one. You did. I know. I was using the yes. new math. Uh, and here's a fun fact about Johnny Sane. He was both the last man to pitch to Babe Ruth in an organized baseball game and the first man to pitch to Jackie Robinson wow. in, in the major leagues. Our final question, by the numbers. Another final four for the Huskies. Since he began the run in 1985, UConn head coach Gino Ariema has led the Huskies to 11 national titles, 22 Final Four appearances, including this year, and 27 conference championship titles. How many undefeated seasons in conference play has he coached UConn to? Is it 1, 9, 2, 13, 3, 17, or 4, 21? Your legacy is on the line. <laughs> Three, two, one, reveal. Uh, this is for Will. So four and three. So Will guessed three, which was 17, and LZ guessed four, which is 21. Molly, reveal who won because one of you is right. I'm excited to reveal we have a winner. The correct answer is number three, 17. Woo! Woo! Wow. So with 15 uh, points, Will, you are officially the first winner of Chatterbrain Oops All Sports. <laughs> My dad was wrong. Sometimes I'm not a loser. Oh, I thought it was fantastic. I'm really happy for Will because in order to have a rivalry, I needed competition. There was no rivalry <laughs> before that. And now we finally yeah. have a rivalry. Will, LZ, you're both gorgeous people inside and out. We love your sports takes. We love your opinions, your news, your insight. You are two of my favorite people in the world of sports. And the fact that there were two queer men on a sports podcast is making me very, very happy. So thank you for having me. Thank you for having Molly. And we will see everyone on Twitch for Chatterbrain, the news game show, every single Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Thank you guys so much. Good luck with the show. Good luck with the show. Thank you. Woohoo. Okay, now it's back to us. All right. Us Congratulations on your loss, LZ. My God. Hey, that was fun. That was fun. And that's our show for this week. Thanks, everyone, for listening to The Long Game with LZ and Leach. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in Monday, April 4th at 12.30 p.m. for our next live simulcast on Twitch at twitch.tv slash The Recount. That's twitch.tv slash The Recount. And on both The Recount Twitter and Recount YouTube platforms. The Long Game is produced by Pierre Bienname, Megan Burney, Mark Levine, and Mark Lysen. Music is by Gloria Tales, with some sound design by David Wilson. We'll be back with another podcast next Wednesday. And hopefully, who knows, maybe some more rule changes. Why not? Probably.